Welcome back. We are studying Matthew. For those of you who may be joining us for the very first time, it's Matthew chapter 21 that we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles, you'll want to go ahead and open them up to that chapter. And let me just go ahead and start us off with a word of prayer. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, as I said, please open them up to Matthew chapter 21. We'll go ahead and jump right in. As Rachel mentioned at the beginning, we're going to leave the camera on at the end of class for about 10 minutes or so, so you can all visit. Just an opportunity for us to see each other since we're not able to meet physically. But we are grateful for the technology that allows us to at least meet virtually and to continue to study God's word as we work our way through uh, the first of the Gospels. So Matthew chapter 21. We're going to start with verse 12, if you want to follow along, and we're going to go ahead and read through um, verse 22, basically. The screen says 12 through 17, but we're actually going to go through verse 22. We'll see how far we get today. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Last week when we started looking at this 21st chapter of Matthew, we noted that Jesus had made his final journey to Jerusalem. This was the climax in many respects of his ministry. It was the final act in this ongoing drama. And we pointed out that this was a planned demonstration by Jesus. This was no spontaneous eruption of joy and celebration on the part of the population. Instead, this was something that had been carefully choreographed from the Lord for some time. Jesus was presenting himself to the people of Jerusalem in an unambiguous way as the Messiah, as the Savior, the long-anticipated Son of David. Now, we noted last week that up to this point, the huge crowds that have been following Jesus in Galilee, 
the crowds that had numbered at one point in excess of 5,000 when he had fed the multitude, those crowds by this point have clearly dissipated. Uh, the people, of course, were absolutely enthralled with all of the miracles that Jesus had been performing, but they didn't like the implications of Jesus' miracles for their own lives. Uh, Jesus made it very clear that because he was able to act with authority, he also spoke with authority. And there were certain things that were required of the people. He made it very clear, for example, in John's gospel, that he was the true bread which came down from heaven, that they should not be seeking that bread which satisfies only for a time, but that bread which would nourish their spirits and their souls for all eternity, which he said he alone could give. And we're told that many of his disciples took offense at this. That is to say, many of his followers did not like what he had to say. They said this is a hard saying, hard meaning not hard to understand, but hard to accept. And they turned back and followed him no more. In fact, the scriptures indicate that by this point in his ministry, Jesus had a very small gathering, perhaps 120 people at most, and that's following the resurrection. So those huge crowds that had initially been so excited by Jesus, they have now dwindled down to just a handful. But all of a sudden, here in Matthew chapter 21, as Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem, the crowds are back. There's pandemonium. They're ecstatic. They are shouting and cheering, tearing the palm branches from the trees and taking off their cloaks and laying them before his donkey as he rides in to the city. And we ask the question, what accounts for this change in attitude? Why are the crowds suddenly back? And we said that it's helpful to take a look at some of the other Gospels. Uh, John, in particular, supplies some of the background information. We said one of the events that takes place just prior to Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, Jesus had performed many miracles over the course of his earthly ministry, but the raising of Lazarus from the dead was undoubtedly the most impressive. Uh, often Jesus, when he performed a miracle, particularly raising somebody from the dead, he would tell those who were witnesses not to say anything about it. Uh, Jesus didn't want people to focus merely on the miraculous and miss the message. But this was an occasion where the miracle was very public. Many people saw it. Uh, Lazarus, we're told, had died and he had been in the grave for four days. In fact, in that climate, the Mediterranean climate, his body had already started to decompose. And what's more, we're told that Bethany, which was a village, as we can see here in today's lesson, just outside of Jerusalem, about four miles outside of Jerusalem, it's now a suburb of the city today, but in those days, it was only about four miles outside. We're told that a large number of Jews from Jerusalem had come out to comfort Mary and Martha in the loss of their brother. So lots of people were witnesses to this miracle. It was a very public miracle. It takes place in John chapter 11. And then the very next chapter says, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Now, as I said, that supplies us with the background. That helps us to understand why people were so excited about Jesus entering the city, why the crowds were back. It's because many of them had witnessed the raising of Lazarus, this very public miracle. And what's more, the rumor had spread those four miles to Jerusalem that Jesus had done this, and now he had set his face toward the city. And everybody knew what this meant. It meant that there was a great miracle worker in their midst. He was making his way toward the most important city in the life of all of Judaism. And questions began to arise, could this be the Messiah? And what happens is that Jesus raises the ante because he not only enters Jerusalem, having just performed this extraordinary miracle, 
but he enters Jerusalem in a very specific way. Matthew says that he rode on the back of a donkey. Now, this is the only reference that we have anywhere in the Gospels that Jesus rode an animal anywhere. All the indications suggest to us that Jesus had walked. He had walked from Galilee uh, to Bethany. And now all of a sudden he rides into donkey. He rides on a donkey into the city. He had actually made arrangements for this animal so that he could enter in this particular way. And we said this was part of Jesus' plan to present himself as the Messiah. It was in fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9 that said that when the Messiah came to Jerusalem, he would come humbly riding on the back of a donkey. So what Jesus was doing was, as I said, in a very clear and unambiguous way, he is presenting himself to the people as the Messiah. The messianic secret is out. Up to this point, Jesus really didn't want a whole lot of people to know who he was. And part of the reason for that was every time he performed a miracle, the people got excited and they wanted to acclaim him as their king. And indeed he was. He was their king. He was their Messiah. But the problem was they had their own ideas, their own expectations as to what the Messiah should be like and as to what the Messiah should do. That was clear even with the disciples. When Jesus asked the question up there at Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, that's right. But then when Jesus went on to explain what it really meant to be the Messiah, how he would have to go to Jerusalem and be betrayed into the hands of his enemies and be crucified, it was Peter who said, God forbid this must never happen to you. Because in the minds of Peter, in the minds of the people, in the mind of the other disciples, what the Messiah had come to do was to drive out the oppressors of Israel. And the oppressors of Israel were the Romans. Well, Jesus had indeed come to rescue them from their oppressor, but their oppressor was not the Roman Empire. Their oppressor was sin. That's what Jesus had come to deliver them from. And he knew that the people were not prepared to accept that message. And so he was not prepared at that point, at least, to be acclaimed as their king. But now he's making his final journey to Jerusalem, he has come to earth to die upon the cross. The hour has now arrived. The moment is at hand. And so Jesus does present himself in a clear and, as I said, unambiguous way as this true Savior, riding on the donkey, having performed this miracle. The crowds are back. There's no mistaking him for who he is really claiming to be. The fact that he comes riding on a donkey, we noted last week, is a sign that he is the Messiah, but he is a Messiah who comes in peace. He comes to make peace with the people, peace with them, and peace for them between God and a sinful humanity. He comes in peace for now. Because if you fast forward to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, one of the things that you'll notice is that when Christ comes again at the parousia, at his return in glory, he is going to be depicted as a savior mounted on a white horse who comes to make war against his enemies. His first entrance into the city of Jerusalem, he comes in peace. In the future, he will come to bring justice to the world. Well, at any rate, Jesus makes his way into the city, and Matthew tells us the entire community was stirred. Everybody was stirred up. Uh, the people are, of course, ecstatic because they think the deliverer is at hand. But we're told the religious leaders were anxious. They were anxious, and what's more, they were enraged. 
keep your finger in Matthew chapter 21 and skip to the right for a moment. And let's just take a look at John chapter 11, which describes the raising of Lazarus. The next chapter, of course, describes his entrance into Jerusalem. And as I said, this provides some of the background information, but there are a few interesting details here. In Matthew chapter 11, we're told that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. You see that in verses 38 through 44. But look at the reaction of the religious leaders in the very next verse, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And look at verse 53. And so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus performed the miracles. The people were ecstatic, but the Jewish religious leaders felt threatened by Jesus. Jesus did not have any authority that they had granted to him. And we're going to see that later on in the next chapter. But Jesus spoke with an authority. And I've often said it was like E.F. Hutton. You remember that old E.F. Hutton commercial? When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. And that's the way it was with Jesus. When Jesus spoke, he spoke not with a derived authority, but with his own authority. And the Jewish religious leaders were threatened by that. In fact, they were so threatened by it that there's almost a humorous element in these accounts. Skip ahead to chapter 12 of John, verses 9 through 11. It's humorous, and yet at the same time, it's tragic. In chapter 12, verse 9, we read, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, if you'd heard that somebody had been raised from the dead, and that person was a local person and now a celebrity, wouldn't you want to at least lay eyes on him? Well, these people certainly wanted to see the man who had been raised again. They wanted to see the man who had boldly gone where no one had gone before and come back to tell the tale. But look at verse 10, the very next verse. This is the humorous but tragic part. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I've sometimes said that Lazarus, in my opinion, is one of the most pitiful people in all of scripture. Nobody wants to die, and this poor man died, but nobody wants to die twice. This poor fellow comes back from the dead, and the Jewish religious leaders are plotting to kill him all over again. So that's the atmosphere in Jerusalem after Jesus enters the city. As I said, a very clear, unambiguous demonstration planned beforehand so that nobody could mistake Jesus for who he really was. Well, in the section that we have before us today, we find another 
clearly planned demonstration, another second symbolic act in which Jesus is again presenting himself in a way that the people cannot miss, in a way that the Jewish religious leaders cannot miss, that he is in fact the true promised Messiah. And that is the cleansing of the temple. Now, turn back, if you will, to Matthew chapter 11. Because Matthew chapter 11, and it's been some time since we were in this section of the gospel, but back in Matthew chapter 11, you'll notice that the gospel writer quotes Malachi chapter 3, the Old Testament, last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, which was a prophecy concerning the forerunner of the Messiah. So back there in Matthew chapter 11, where he is talking about John the Baptist, he quotes from Malachi chapter 3. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Now, that's from Malachi chapter 3. It's a description of who? It's a description of John the Baptist. Every Jew understood that before the Messiah would arrive, there would come another who was like Elijah, the prophet, who would pave the way for the coming of the Savior. And that's how people could know that the Messiah was on the brink of arriving. They would know because the forerunner had come. And everybody recognized that John the Baptist was that forerunner. John the Baptist was extremely popular with the people. And Matthew quotes Malachi chapter 3 as a fulfillment of that prophecy. But here's what's fascinating. While he quotes from Malachi chapter 3, he only quotes the first part of the verse. Turn back to Malachi chapter 3. I know we're doing a lot of skipping around, but it's important that you understand this. It's important you understand the mindset of the Jewish people and the religious leaders as Jesus entered the city. It helps to put things in perspective, and it'll give you a new insight into why Jesus does what he does when he arrives in the city. But Malachi chapter 3, 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. John the Baptist. But here's the part that Matthew left out when he quoted that verse in the 11th chapter. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the first part of Malachi chapter 3 speaks of a forerunner, but the second part of the very same verse says that soon after that, the Messiah himself, the Lord himself will arrive, and the first thing he will do is he will go to his temple. Every Jew of the first century knew that when the Messiah came, there would first be a forerunner. John the Baptist, as I said, was wildly popular, so everybody recognized he was the forerunner. John the Baptist had also borne witness to Jesus. He said, I am the one who baptizes you with water, but there is one who is coming after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He is prepared to clear the threshing floor. And then, of course, when Jesus appeared there on the banks of the Jordan River, Jesus pointed to, or John pointed to Jesus and he said, Behold, there is the one, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. 
So everybody knew there would be a forerunner. That was John the Baptist. Now Jesus is presenting himself, riding in on the back of a donkey as the Messiah. And everybody knew that the true Messiah, the first thing he would do when he appeared was he would go and cleanse the temple. That's what Malachi chapter 3 says. And so when Jesus went up to the temple here in chapter 21, verses 12 and following, again, it was a clear symbolic act, no doubt about it, Jesus presenting himself as the Savior. Now, this is indeed a dramatic thing that Jesus does, going up to the temple and driving out the money changers, cleansing the temple. And it raises an important question. What was wrong with the temple when Jesus arrived? What was it about the Jewish religious system that required cleansing? Now, the temple was the center of Jewish life and worship. It was the most important place for any Jew anywhere in the world. I've sometimes pointed out that it didn't matter what direction you were coming from, whether you were coming from the north, the south, the east, or the west, you always went up to Jerusalem. Now, there was a sense in which Jerusalem was located on a hill, it was located on Mount Zion, so you had to go up to it. But it wasn't just that. Symbolically, Jerusalem was the high place for all Jews. So you always went up to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem and the temple, these were the most important places. This was the place where God dwelt symbolically with his people. And furthermore, it was a very busy place. Jerusalem was a busy place. The temple was a busy place. This was especially true at the time of the festivals, the celebrations, festivals like Passover in particular. This is where the sacrifices would take place. Um, the early Jewish historian Josephus records that on one Passover, over the course of just one Passover, as many as 265, I, I love the fact that he gets the number just right, 265,500 lambs were offered on just one Passover. Now, when you take into consideration the fact that it was one lamb per household, and a house could, could have four people or more in it, that gives you an idea of just how many people would have gone up to Jerusalem for a festival like this. There literally could have been a million people that had crowded into Jerusalem for these festivals. So this was a place of great activity. It was a place of great movement, all kinds of people there. Uh, the Roman governor actually had his headquarters, not in Jerusalem, but in Caesarea Maritima. Now we all know Pontius Pilate was in Jerusalem at this point, and that's because the Romans always came down for the festivals. It was the only way that they could maintain the peace. So you need to understand that at this point, when Jesus comes to the temple, this is a very busy place. It's a place filled with activity. This is the most sacred time of the year, the high feast, the feast of the Passover, representative of how God had passed over the Jewish people at the time of their deliverance in the Exodus. But even though the temple was an important place, the temple by the time that Jesus arrived, had indeed become a very corrupt place. Now, to get a sense of this, you really need to understand the architecture and the layout of the temple complex. Uh, the temple was the most impressive building in all of Jerusalem. Uh, it was made of polished white stone adorned with gold, as you can see in this diorama. Um, it was so brilliant that when the sun was rising in the morning, 
and glinting off of that polished stone, nobody could look at it. It would burn your eyes. It was an absolutely magnificent structure. And it was surrounded by a series of concentric courts. Uh, the temple itself, which you can see there on the screen, was a rather relatively small building. And uh, the innermost portion of it was known as the Holy of Holies. Only one person could go into the Holy of Holies, and that was the high priest, and he could only go once a year. And he went once a year to make sacrifice on behalf of the people and on behalf of himself. But he did that once a year, and he did it at Passover. But then beyond that innermost sanctum, there was a larger court. This was known as the court of the priests. This is where the priests and the Levites who assisted the priests were permitted to go. That's as far as they could go, but they could go that much closer to the building. Then you would pass through a gate, go down several stairs to another court and the next level, and that was known as the court of Israel. Now that was as far as the Jewish men could go. All right, they were not permitted to enter the court of the priests, but they could go to the court of Israel. And then you would pass through another gate and down to another level where you entered the court of the women. Now that was as far as the Jewish women could go. They could not pass beyond that perimeter. And then you went down through another gate, down several other flights of stairs, until you eventually entered this much wider court, which was known as the court of the Gentiles. Now that's as far as the Gentiles were permitted to go. And Gentiles were not permitted any further beyond that point. In fact, there were signs posted all around the walls that said trespassers will be not prosecuted, but executed. You may recall that in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul was arrested in Jerusalem uh, toward the end of the book of Acts, and the charge that was brought against him was that he had brought Gentiles into the temple precincts. That is to say, he had brought a Gentile beyond the court of the Gentiles into the court of Israel. Now, that actually wasn't true. It was a trumped-up charge. Paul hadn't actually done that, but that was the charge that was brought against him, and we're told the crowd was so enraged about it that they were prepared to seize Paul and put him to death. It was only the timely intervention of the Roman guard that saved Paul. So this was very serious business. No Gentiles beyond the court of the Gentiles. But it was here in the court of Gentiles during the Passover that all of the activity really took place. Uh, this is where a great deal of buying and selling took place. There were two types of commerce that were transacted here in the court of the Gentiles. You can see it there on the right of your screen. It's got the colonnade all around it. The first kind was the changing of money. Every Jew on the face of the earth was expected to pay a tax to the temple. It's called the half shekel tax. Every male Jew had to pay the half shekel tax. Now, you didn't have to pay it in Jerusalem. Um, tax collectors, a few months before the Passover, would oftentimes set up their tax booths in small towns and communities along the way to the city. And you could go ahead and pay the half-shekel tax in your own community. In fact, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll recall the tax collectors came up to Peter and wanted to know if he and his master had paid the half-shekel tax. And Peter sheepishly replied, oh yes, my master pays the half-shekel half tax. And then he went back and he told Jesus about it, 
fearful that Jesus hadn't paid the tax. And Jesus, you'll recall, told him to go and catch a fish, and in the mouth of the fish there would be a shekel. And he was to take that coin, and he was to pay the tax for himself and for the Lord. So every Jew is expected to pay this, and you could pay it, as I said, in your own community. However, several weeks before the Passover, they would close down shop and move everything to Jerusalem. So if you hadn't paid the tax by that point, you had to pay it in Jerusalem. You had to do it when you made your pilgrimage to the city. But here was the problem. If you paid the tax, it had to be paid in temple currency. If you were a Jew and you were coming from other parts of the world, you would come with your own currency. It's like when we travel overseas and you go to Europe and a country only uses euros, or you go to Britain and you find that they only use pounds sterling. It's always surprising to me when I take a group overseas and people get very frustrated. We go into a country like Greece or Turkey and they want to know why it is that people won't take American dollars. The reason for that is you're not in America anymore. They have their own currency. And you know what you have to do. You have to exchange the currency. And normally when you exchange the currency, there is what? There is an exchange rate. Well, when people came to Jerusalem to pay the half shekel tax, which was required, they had to pay that tax, as I said, in the temple currency, which meant that you had to exchange your currency for temple currency. And as today, there was always an exchange rate. So that's the first type of commerce that took place there. And let me just say, the exchange rate was not a good rate. If you were having to exchange your currency, you were losing in the process. So that's the first type of commerce that took place in the temple courts. The other type of commerce was the buying and selling of animals. Uh, it was required, as I said, that when you went up to Jerusalem, you had to present an animal as a sacrifice, one lamb or one goat for an entire family. But there were other sacrifices. A woman who had been safely delivered of a child would present two doves, for example. Now, if you were making your way to Jerusalem from Galilee or for some other portion of Judea, you could bring your own animal. That was perfectly allowable. But if you're traveling the distance from Galilee and you want to avoid Samaria and say you take the longer Transjordan route, uh, bringing your own animal could be time consuming and it could be frustrating. Not only that, but when you got to Jerusalem with your own animal, it had to be inspected by the priests. Whatever animal was offered, it had to be the law dictated without spot or blemish. Now, when you think about it, this actually made a lot of sense. These two practices of exchanging the currency for temple currency and offering only the best of your flock or the best of your herd as a sacrifice to an animal without spot or blemish, all of this was meant to teach the people of Israel a very important lesson. It was meant to teach them that the God they worshipped was the Holy One. I pointed out before that of all the adjectives that are used in Scripture to describe God, the one that is used more than any other, we don't think of it this way. When we think of God, we think of the God of love, the God of mercy, the God of forgiveness. But of all the adjectives that are used in Scripture to describe God, the one that is used more than any other is the adjective holy. God is the holy one. He is transcendent. He sits enthroned above all. 
And so these two practices of offering the best of your herd and offering only the holy temple currency was meant to impress upon the people that their God was a holy one. In and of itself, the practice was not a bad one. But the problem was that the practice lent itself to abuse. And there was a great deal of abuse in the first century when it came to this. As I said, people had to exchange the currency and the exchange rate was oftentimes exorbitant, sometimes 50%. And not only that, but if you didn't wanna bring your own animal, you came up and you had to purchase an animal that the priest had already inspected, those animals were being sold at a rate much higher than what you would have been able to purchase an animal for outside the city. And it had almost become inevitable that if you did bring your own animal, for one reason or another, the priest would find something wrong with it. So that you were compelled to purchase one of their animals at the heightened rate. So you can see there was this really fleecing of the people, no pun intended, that was taking place in Jerusalem when the people went up to the city. It had really become a corrupt thing. The temple of God, the dwelling place of God with man, had for all intents and purposes become a veritable bazaar. And that's what was so upsetting to Jesus. There was the buying and the selling of salvation, the buying and selling of worship, if you will. This is precisely the same thing that had upset the Augustinian monk Martin Luther in 1517. He had been deeply concerned about the practice of the medieval church, and remember that Martin Luther at this point was not a Protestant. Martin Luther was a priest of the church. He was a professor at the University of Wittenberg, professor of theology. He was a monk, one of the strictest sects of the church in that time period. But Martin Luther was deeply concerned. He was hearing confessions one day in the parish church, which was the responsibility of a priest. And as he was hearing confessions, he heard one man tell what he had done. And Martin Luther gave him so many acts of penance to go and do as a sign that he was sorry for his sins. And the man replied that it was not necessary that he do that. Now, in those days not so much in our day anymore, but in those days, you really didn't question the priest. Those were the good old days. But in those days, you didn't question the priest. And so when Martin Luther assigned him acts of penance and he said he didn't need to do it, Luther, of course, asked him, well, why? And he replied that he had purchased a plenary indulgence. There was a Dominican monk by the name of John Tetzel who used to go through the streets with a little song, he would sing out, for every coin in coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Uh, In those days, Pope Leo X had come up with an ingenious way of raising money to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. He would sell plenary indulgences. You could purchase little pieces of paper with the papal seal on them that stated that for a certain amount of money, you could get so much time off of purgatory. And what made the process even more attractive was the fact that you could not only purchase a plenary indulgence for yourself, you could actually, listen to this, purchase a plenary indulgence for a loved one. So for Mother's Day, you could buy mom, dear old mom, a plenary indulgence and buy her so many years off of purgatory. Well, Martin Luther was absolutely appalled by this. 
and he began to keep a catalog of all of the abuses of the medieval church and the papacy. And you know the story on October 31st, 1517, we call it Halloween, it was called Reformation Day for many years. What he did was he took those 95 complaints, the 95 theses, and he nailed them to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. And one of his primary complaints was this selling of plenary indulgences. Now, to the Catholic Church's credit, uh, there was a counter-reformation, and a lot of this was corrected. The abuses of the medieval church were corrected. But this is the way it was in Luther's day, this buying and this selling of salvation. And it enraged him. And it was precisely the same thing that was taking place in the temple up there in Jerusalem, the buying and selling of salvation. It was the fleecing of the people. They were coming up there to worship, to have their sins atoned for, and they were having to pay a severe price for it. And Jesus was absolutely appalled. And Jesus was angry. And when I say he was angry, I don't mean angry in the way that we sometimes get angry and lose our temper and fly off the handle. Jesus was indignant, and rightly so. And when I say he was indignant, he was angry, let me tell you something. He was really angry. John's version of the cleansing of the temple has Jesus driving out the money changers with a whip. We're told that he made a whip out of cords and he was literally whipping these people, driving them out of the temple. Now, there were a number of things about this practice that I think really enraged Jesus. And it's worthy to spend some time looking at each of them in turn. The first thing that upset Jesus about this practice of buying and selling, with no, dis no regard whatsoever for the people, was that the priests, the leaders of the people, were engaged in the exploitation of the less fortunate. One of the things that you will notice when you read through the Gospels is that Jesus had a heart for the down and outers. Jesus had a heart for those who were less fortunate. This is a strong word of caution to us as the church. Sometimes we like only PLU. Do you know what I mean by PLU? We are attracted to people like us. But Jesus had a heart for those who are oftentimes not like us, those who were on the fringe. In fact, the greatest numbers to follow Jesus were people who were poor. They were not the affluent. They were not the influential. It was the affluent, the influential, the powerful people that were oftentimes in opposition to Jesus. Jesus had a heart for the poor. And he had a heart for the poor because he knew his father had a heart for the poor. This had been the case in the Old Testament. In the book of Amos, Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 7 and 11. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and you can turn to Amos. I put it up there on the screen, but if, you, if you'd like to read it for yourself, it's in Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. And we read these words. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat. 
the prophet was complaining about the fact that the people would worship on the Sabbath, but they couldn't wait for the Sabbath to conclude. They didn't see it as a great thing in which they could worship the Lord and give thanks for his many blessings. They couldn't wait for the Sabbath to be over so they could get back to business. So they could get back to buying and selling and being unjust. As he puts it here, that they might buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. He goes on, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of these deeds. Verse 11, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. God was outraged at the way that his people were taking advantage of their fellow man. And Jesus was outraged when he went to Jerusalem and saw it as well. When you ask the question, what was the problem? Why did the temple need purified? This was one of the reasons, the exploitation of the less fortunate. And as Christians, we need to take that to heart as well. But it wasn't just that they were exploiting people. They were actually presenting, preventing people from coming and worshiping the Lord. Jesus made it very clear. He said God's house was intended to be a place of prayer for all people, but it had been turned into a den of thieves. People were not able to come and worship. If they came with an animal and they didn't have the money for the exchange, and if their animal was found to be with blemish, they were forced to go away with no atonement for their sins. Now, earlier in Matthew chapter 19, we're told that Jesus, when the disciples tried to shoo away a group of children and said, let the little children come to me and forbid them not, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to who? To the innocent among us. It was the children of God. It was the children of Israel that the priests, the leaders of the people were shooing away, and Jesus was outraged by it. My friends, we should never put any stumbling block in the way of anybody who seeks to come to God. Our churches ought to be filled with every sort and condition of man and woman possible. And it shouldn't just be a case where we say, well, of course, anybody can come and worship. It's not just a matter of coming and worshiping, you see. It's a matter of coming and being made a part of a community. It's a matter of coming and being made welcome. And finally, Jesus was upset with what was taking place in the temple, not only because there was exploitation, not only because they were preventing people from actually coming and worshiping, which is what the temple was all about, but as he said, they had turned this house of God into a den of robbers. If you think about it, what Jesus is really concerned about here is the commercialization of religion. The commercialization of religion. This is a problem in Western culture today because we are so affluent. We have to be very careful in capitalist nations. Now, back in 1978, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, the well-known novelist and philosopher and historian who had spent years in the gulag and who lived to write about it because of his opposition to Joseph Stalin, uh, he died just um, maybe a decade ago, but a, a great intellectual light of our time. In 1978, in June of 1978, he delivered a commencement address at Harvard University. And it was a tour de force. But he had this to say about communism and capitalism. He made the point that they're not as different as we tend to think. And here's what Solzhenitsyn said. He said, communism claims that matter is all that is. 
He said, Western materialism believes that matter is all that matters. And it's true, isn't it? When we think of successful people, when you say, well, there goes a successful man or a successful woman, we oftentimes judge their success not on the purity of their character or their moral. We judge that person oftentimes on how successful they have been financially. If they have a big house, they drive an expensive car, they have a huge stock portfolio, we say, well, they've been very successful. Because that's the way we think in Western culture today. Materialism believes that matter is all that matters. The one who dies with the most toys wins. Well, let me tell you something. That's not just a problem in Western culture today. Western culture has made it a problem for the Western church as well. Uh, it certainly is a problem for liberal denominations today. You know, in many of the mainline Protestant denominations, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Methodists, and oh yes, the Episcopalians, you can deny a belief in the articles of the creed. You don't have to believe anymore in the divinity of Christ, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection. You don't have to believe in the judgment of the world to come. You don't have to believe in any of those things. You don't have to believe in the authority of the Bible, any of those things, and still be valued as a part of those denominations. The Episcopal Church is filled with people like that. People like Jack Spong, who denies every article of the creed and yet is still a bishop of the church. But while you can deny all the articles of the creed, try, and we know this firsthand, try leaving that denomination with your buildings and see what happens. Deny Jesus Christ if you want, but try leaving the denomination with your buildings, and what you will find is the full force of the denominational weight and power will come crashing down upon you, which tells you that the denomination is concerned with what? not concerned with purity of faith, concerned only with real estate. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here because this is recorded, and it always makes me very nervous when that's the case, but I'm going to go out here on a limb. There is a church in my neighborhood. I'm getting a lot of walking in because I'm not allowed to come into the office and so forth. I'm getting a lot of walking in. There is a church in the neighborhood which shall remain nameless. Um, and it has a poster hanging on its front gate. It is a picture of the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Michael Curry, and the poster said, love is the way. It's a line taken from the sermon that he delivered at the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Love is the way, and every time I walk by there, I just cringe. Because I think to myself, love is the way, provided that you agree with us, but if you don't agree with us, we're going to sue the pants off you. Now, see, that is typical of mainline Protestant denominations today. The most important thing is the stuff, not the faith. Now, to be fair, this is not just a problem for the liberals. We have to face the reality that this is a problem for the conservatives as well. We are just as guilty of an attachment to things as the liberals are. 
This is what the whole prosperity movement is all about, the prosperity gospel that says that what God wants for you is to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And if you don't believe me, the most popular pastor in America today who has the largest congregation, nearly 7 million people at Lakewood Church on a given Sunday, is this man, Joel Osteen. He is extremely popular. And this is what he has to say. He said, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, and to fulfill the destiny he has laid for us. Think about that. God wants us to what? Prosper financially. No mention here of prospering in terms of holiness, but prosper financially and to have plenty of money to fulfill the destiny that he has laid for us. Health, wealth, and prosperity. Now, as I said, he's the most popular pastor in America today. Seven million people tune in to hear this man on a given week. Well, contrast what Pastor Osteen has to say with what Jesus himself had to say. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Regardless of what Pastor Osteen said, the Lord said something very, very different. My friends, evangelicals, even though they talk about the Bible, even though they talk about love and mercy and grace and sin and redemption, all of the language of the Bible, they are oftentimes the most worldly people in America today. You can see this in so many ways. We see it in a desire for entertainment in churches today. In so many places, sermons have given way to skits. Sermons, if they are preached, have an emphasis on happiness versus holiness. What I've discovered is that among many evangelicals, and I regard myself as an evangelical Christian, but among many evangelicals, what we have discovered is that lo and behold, even though they use the language of scripture, there is actually a lack of confidence in the Bible. Now, there's not a lack of confidence in the authority of the Bible. If you ask most evangelicals, do you believe the Bible to be the word of God and to contain all things necessary to salvation? They would say, oh, absolutely. They'll sign on the dotted line. But while they do not doubt the authority of the Bible, here's the problem. They doubt the sufficiency of the Bible. They doubt that the Bible is sufficient to do the task of converting people, of bringing those people into the kingdom of God. Oh, yes, the Bible is the word of God, but that's not enough in our day and age. Something else is required. And so what do we have to do? We have to somehow woo people into the kingdom of God. That's why so many worship services have looked more like entertainment venues. They look more like rock concerts than they do actual worship services. So we see this emphasis upon things and stuff in terms of our entertainment culture. We also see this emphasis upon stuff in terms of a shallow religiosity. J.I. Packer once said, the problem with American Christianity 
is that it is 3,000 miles wide and half an inch deep. And he was absolutely true, correct. How many of you remember that movement that came out some years ago, the WWJD movement? Raise your hand if you remember that WWJD movement. All right. It was on everything. It was on bags, on bumper stickers, on hats like this one, which I looked for on the internet yesterday. You know how much that hat costs? It costs almost $30 to purchase that hat. It reminds me of a story of a man who went into a Christian bookstore, which was filled with some books, some good books, but also a lot of kitsch. And he saw a hat like that up there on the shelf, and he'd never seen it before. And he turned to the clerk and he said, WWJD, what does that mean? And the clerk, in the nicest voice possible, replied, oh, that means what would Jesus do? man looked at the hat again, then he turned back to the clerk and he said, well, I'm pretty sure Jesus would not pay $30 for that hat. But you see, that's the shallow religiosity of our days. It's the religion of the bumper sticker culture. Honk if you love Jesus. If the trumpet sounds, grab hold of the wheel. It's a shallow religiosity. It's not a serious religiosity. And that's what Jesus was so concerned about. That's what he was concerned about. That's what was taking place, this buying and selling of religion. This materialism of the culture had found its way into the temple of God itself. And Jesus knew if that was allowed to remain, what was going to happen to Israel? Jesus was returning to the question that he had asked earlier in this gospel in Matthew chapter 5. He said to his followers, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. We understand that in those days, salt was used as a preservative. It was used to stem the tide of decay and putrefaction. Jesus said, you are the salt of the world. But what happens if the salt loses its saltiness? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. Salt that doesn't perform its function is not good for anything at all. Israel was intended to be a light to the nations, to bring in the Gentiles so that the full company of God's people might be there. And here were the leaders of Israel, the leaders of Israel creating an environment in which people couldn't even come and worship. They were being taken advantage Well, you and I are the light of the world. You and I are called to be the salt of the earth. What happens when we engage in this same kind of practice? When the church becomes like the world, the question really is, what good is it? Is it good for anything at all? Let me tell you something. When Jesus went in and cleansed that temple, it was because it had become a den of robbers. And my friends, we Christians oftentimes live just as they lived. We seem to be more concerned with stuff than we are concerned with people. We are all oftentimes concerned more with worshiping mammon than we are with worshiping God. And Jesus brought down the hammer on those practices in the temple there in Matthew chapter 21, and the promise is that he will do the same for us if we do not repent and believe. It was a powerful lesson that Jesus was teaching the crowd, a powerful lesson about bad religion. 
Ross Douthat, who I had for the Mere Anglicanism Conference some years ago, wrote a book. He's a New York Times columnist. The book was entitled Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. And this is what he had to say about religion in America today. And remember, we are the most religious nation on earth. The vast majority of Americans refer to themselves as evangelicals, born-again Christians. But here's what he had to say. He said, America's problem isn't too much religion or too little of it. It's bad religion. It's the slow motion collapse of traditional Christianity and of the variety of destructive and the rise of the variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. That is what outraged Jesus. And he went into the temple with a whip, and he drove out those who were defiling the Lord's house. Let's learn the lesson for ourselves, and let's make sure that when we come into God's house, when we come virtually, or when, God willing, we are able to come physically, that we purify our hearts and our minds, that we welcome all people from every background, that we don't put any stumbling block before them, but we make them feel welcome not only welcome to be there, but welcome to be a part of our community. Let's remember that if God has brought them there, that's because we need them and they need us. And let us make God's house a house of prayer for all people. Let's be sure that it's not a den of robbers. Next week, we're going to take a look at the cursing of the fig tree. Uh, again, another miracle, and again, another lesson for the disciples in particular, but a powerful lesson for us as well about the type of Christianity that is a fruitless Christianity. Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll know them by their fruit. You know an apple tree if it has apples on it. Even if you're not an expert in horticulture, you can tell an apple tree if it's got apples on it. But if it's a fruit tree and it never produces fruit, what good is it? Well, that was the question that Jesus asked the Jewish religious leaders. It's a question that he put before the disciples, and it's a question for us as well. So let us pray as we go through this week to be grateful for the many blessings that God has given us. Uh, it is true we are all struggling. We're in a difficult place. You're frustrated. I'm frustrated. But let's remember that God has nevertheless blessed us. None of us is without a home to go to. None of us is going hungry right now. And none of us is in great need. We're still able to get out and exercise. There are so many things that we are blessed with. Let's not put a stumbling block before others, but let us show others by our faith, the pure religion of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. This was a powerful act. It was a stunning act that Jesus performed when he went into Jerusalem. People knew that the Messiah was going to come and cleanse the temple, but nobody realized how corrupt the temple had really become. We're told that Jesus entrusted himself to no man because he knew what was in the heart of men. And we know that it's not just institutions that get corrupt. Institutions get corrupt because human hearts are corrupt. 
So grant us the grace, Lord, not to sit in judgment of the scribes and the Pharisees, but to look deep within ourselves and see how we too have put a stumbling block before others. How we have not welcomed people into our midst, into our homes, into our family, the family of God. And grant us the grace to do better, Lord, that all may find in you one who is mighty to save. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.